When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, folks, ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Timothy Chuli. Timothy, thanks so much for joining me on the Violin Podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, this is our first time meeting, and I'm so glad to have met. And we have a mutual friend, which is a previous person on the Violin Podcast, Max Tan. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Eric. Timothy, Timothy uh, there are a lot of things on my mind that I'd love to ask you, and I'm sure that the audience is very curious on what to ask you. But first of all, let's get to know you. Where are you from? Where, um, where are you currently based at the moment? And um, and how'd you get started with the violin? Yeah. So I was born in Victoria, British Columbia in Canada, uh, born and raised there. And then I moved to Philadelphia when I was about 16. Um, I moved to Philadelphia because I went to school here at the Curtis Institute of Music. And then for the past 10 years, I've been living between Philadelphia and New York because I was completing my master's degree at the Juilliard School with Catherine Cho. And now I'm an artist diploma student there as well. And uh, I, I still have my family living here. That's excellent. Yeah. So you're currently based in uh, Philadelphia right now and you, you, you commute back and forth while you're in school? Did, especially for my first year at my master's degree. And then after that, I, I, I got a place and then started just going back and forth. It's not so far away. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. I, I bet that's very uh, exhausting going back and forth. But Philly and New York are not so, not so far away, thankfully. So, um, so Timothy, right now, um, I just like to pick your mind a little bit, and uh, you you have a lot of competition experience. You have a lot of performance experience that I'm sure that everyone listening in are familiar with. Um, so I would definitely like to talk about your time in the Queen Elizabeth competition and what the process was like um, from from the moment you made the decision to compete in Queen Elizabeth to the moment you're in the finals competing um, where you got second place. I know that Max Tan touched a little bit on it uh, when he was talking about his time in Menuhin a few few years back, and I encourage all my listeners to check out Max Tan's interview. So, yeah, can you share your thoughts on that? I applied for the Queen Elizabeth competition um, in December. But I had made the decision to apply about a year before. So I remember it was one of my last lessons with my teacher before the end of the semester of my first year of my master's degree. And I remember I just came into my lesson and saying, Ms. Cho, um, I would like to think about doing some competitions, especially next year, because there are so many of them happening. Uh, in August, there was the Shanghai Isaac Stern competition. In September, there was Indianapolis. October, there was Hanover Joachim competition. Then there was uh, Long Thibault. And then there was another one, something else um, in that first half. And in the second half, it was like Queen Elizabeth, Tchaikovsky, Montreal, Michael Hill, and a different, another one. I forget which one. Yeah, so, yeah, so, back to back to back. <laughs> Quite a list. Literally like two, two big chunks. And Joe, my teacher, was like, Timmy, you know, I was thinking about that since um, the past couple of months. I thought there was a really good time for you to do and prepare for some competitions. So 
uh, I talked through with her and she's like, why don't we choose one competition that you really want to do? And for me, I told her, I really want to do Queen Elizabeth because I think that that is for me the biggest violin competition out there. It seems the most glamorous. It seems the most fair. It seemed, I always wanted to spend more time in Europe and Belgium for me was just, I heard so much about it and never have gone there. And she's like, okay, that's great. So let's put that one year of preparation is perfect timing, she said, to prepare for these competitions. But then she said, let's choose another one as well. Let's not put all our eggs in one basket. So I said, okay. Uh, and she said, so what's the other one? Let's choose one in the first half. So within six months or seven months. And she, I said, maybe Indianapolis or maybe Hanover, you often competition. And then she's like, why don't you think about it? So I thought about it. And for me, you know, Indianapolis is a, is a big competition. My brother competed in it and did very well in it before in the past. But I looked at the timing and it was right after the summer break and literally was one week away um, from the start of the new semester until the competition. And I just thought that that was a little bit risky because I felt like I needed to play through my repertoire in studio class or for my teacher for competing. So I decided to do Hanover Joachim competition. And I said, oh, I always wanted to spend time in Germany anyway. So I ended up applying for both Hanover and Queen Elizabeth. And then um, things happened really well. I had a lot of time to practice. One Hanover competition. And then I came back to my lesson the week after I finished Hanover competition. And she's like, that's great. Wonderful. Um, and she's like, do you still want to do Queen Elizabeth at this point? And part of me didn't want to, but part of me wanted to because, you know, getting first prize at Hanover was already kind of a, a big thing. And you just never know with competitions. You never know what the jury is looking for. You never know what your mood and your, what happening, what's happening with your hands that day. And it's, it's easy. You could be knocked out by the first round. And she said that, you know, like even maybe even like fourth or fifth prize at Queen Elizabeth wouldn't help you if you had one first prize at Hanover. And so we said, okay, let's just think about it. So I talked over it with it with my mom and I talked over it with myself. And I decided, you know, if it's any competition that I wasn't going to advance in, at least it was the Queen Elizabeth. So I went forwards and applied for it. And I remember um, coming out of winning first prize at Hanover, there was a lot of concert debuts that came right after. So I was trying to think about juggling, learning all the repertoire for Queen Elizabeth and also doing all these debut concerts that were coming right after that other competition. And then I remember just preparing for that. It was very stressful, but I learned how to really divide my time. And I was still in my master's, so I still had a lot of classes to do. And now, as I'm saying this out loud, now I'm like, I'm, I was a little crazy. But um, I did it through a very strategic process. So I remember in the winter break, um, I just really practiced my butt off. I learned all the new things that were required for Queen Elizabeth. And I chose repertoire that I felt truly comfortable with. Um, maybe I did one that I wasn't so comfortable with, but the majority of the pieces that I chose was not about um, programming, to be honest. It was more about what I felt that I could show best. And so then uh, it was a couple months before Queen Elizabeth, and I got the commission piece, and I said, this is everything that I was fearing, basically. It was basically an atonal piece with piano. Every bar changed. It was 7-4, then it was 5-4, then it was like 5-18. It just, it was a disaster. And then I learned it, and I, I don't have perfect pitch, so for me, it was very difficult to, to learn these very rapid scales and everything, and I'm not such a good sight reader as well, so I felt very handicapped. And I was very stressed out, um, and so I was like, ah, oh, maybe I chose the wrong decision to do this competition. <laughs> like, why am I doing this? Should I cancel?
but I just went, I went with it. And then um, once I got into, once I went into Belgium and, and was preparing for the competition, it was weirdly peaceful. I say weirdly because if I compare it to Hanover competition and other competitions that I've done in the past, there was a lot of time in between the first round to the second round to the second half of the second round to the third round. Um, I remember I got there and I picked and drew number 54. So that meant there were 54 other people that had to go before me. And I think it was on the sixth day or something of the competition, but I had gone there three days earlier. So I had nine days to prepare mentally for it. And that was, that was a challenge because for me, um, sometimes you just want to get over with it because like every day you're like, oh, I should work even harder. Um, so first round for me was the most difficult by far because it touched the most essential types of repertoire, Bach, Beethoven, and Paganini. For me, those are the most uh, naked rounds, I would say. Second round was a combination of the recital round with a commission piece and a Mozart violin concerto. And for me, I felt very comfortable in that round. Um, and then the last final round after going into the chapelle, which is this chapel, Queen Elizabeth has this tradition of putting their finalists into an, a secluded space to learn a new concerto in the span of seven days so that we can play it with no references to anybody else. Um, and that's the challenge, that plus a romantic concerto. And it was stressful, but I felt like everybody was going through the same thing. And it was, it was really quite an interesting experience. Did you have any prior experience doing competitions before your before your studies at Curtis and Juilliard? Um, can you can you uh, touch base on doing competitions as you were growing up? Yeah, I did a few competitions while I was at Curtis, uh, and even before that, I did a few competitions in my hometown, but they were all very small. They're all local competitions, provincial ones. But when I came to Curtis, I did I think three competitions. I did Menuhin competition. I actually that's why I met Max, the Menuhin competition in Austin. Then I did one in New Zealand, the Michael Hill competition, which I got third prize. And then I did also uh, actually the very first one I did was the Montreal Symphony Standard Life competition. Uh, now it's called Manual Life, and it's a national competition. But that was really the first experience, and it was a great experience. I, I won that one. Um, but other than that, I, I, I kind of separated into two chunks. I would say it was near the beginning of my time at Curtis. Then it was a big period chunk, big chunk where I didn't do any competitions. And then at Juilliard, my, my last year, I did a lot of competitions. I did three uh, and they, they all turned out uh, very good. So it turns out you actually had a lot to juggle with because you were you're dealing with school. In addition to that, you're working for these competitions. Um, how was that? How was it like uh, with the balance? I'm sure the balance was uh, really difficult to manage. It was really difficult to manage. Not only was I doing my master's in competitions, but I was still commuting between Philadelphia and New York, which added to a lot of uh, time. Um, how did I do it? I don't know. For me, I'm a type of person that if I'm given a lot of things, I become, I tend to be more efficient. <laughs> like right now, <laughs> I'm like, I'm withering to, to even make coffee in the morning. <laughs> I can, I'm crawling out of my bed and trying to make coffee. Um, but when given a lot of tasks to do, I feel like I feel very motivated to, to keep going on and on and on. Um, I think uh, it takes a lot of self-determination and there's a lot of times when you just start questioning why am I doing this and why am I putting so much effort into something that I have no real result out of coming for. But I felt like looking back, I think there was a lot 
of lessons that I learned, uh, the lesson of consistency um, going into pre preparing these competition. And classes were great because I, I think, if anything, going to class was kind of more like, um, like free time in the sense that I can distract myself from preparing from these competitions and be in the moment. And I really enjoyed that. So for me, juggling was definitely a challenge, but uh, I wouldn't say that I hated it or anything. A topic that we, uh, of course, discussed on previous episodes on um, on Augusta McKay Lodge's episode recently, uh, we discussed on like what it means to be an artist in you know the year 2020. And we oftentimes ask this question of like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm making a living with this wooden box. I said, <laughs> so it's um, it's. I think it's a. I think it's a good conversation to continue having with oneself, especially with all the people listening and watching. Of course, that it's, you know, this is this is a question you'll be probably asking for the rest of your life. You know, like what am I doing? How am I doing it? Where am I going to be doing it? Um, so I, I appreciate your your thoughts on that, and I'm glad that you're. Um, you know, down to earth guy to, and, and it's humbling to hear that you also deal with like the everyday stresses, just like everybody else, you know, even though your name is plastered on all these competition posters and you're associated with so many different prizes, you, you know, you, you, you have uh, a lot of the same concerns, like, you know, being tired yeah. and especially with all the commuting and stuff. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I want to talk about the violin that you play on. This is actually the first time I am discussing on what a person is playing and you actually have it ready. I did, by the way, for the record, I didn't ask <laughs> Timothy to prepare his violin, but I'm, but probably through other interviews, you have it ready. But um, can you talk about the violin that you play on and uh, your relationship with it? Yeah, actually, I was just practicing right before I called you and that's why. How convenient. <laughs> Yeah, the violin that I have here, it's a beautiful 1717 Stradivarius from, on loan to me from the Canada Council for the Arts. It's a really wonderful instrument. I'm so, so incredibly fortunate to have this on loan for me for six years now. And uh, it's a golden period Stradivarius. And, uh, you know, I was playing on a Guarneri del Jesu before I had this violin for three years. And it was a beautiful instrument as well. And um, I mean, for those of you that don't know, like within the violin community, you know, strads are great in the music industry. But then when you have a Grenari del Jesu, it's like, that is the gold standard. Um, but to be honest, and I was persuaded by that. I was like, you know, Grenari del Jesu are the best instruments and they're wonderful instruments. But then for some reason, I remember playing on it. It was beautiful, but I felt like it wasn't an instrument that I felt that had the best, uh, wasn't the best medium for me to, to use. But then when I changed to this violin, I remember just, I really connected to it. And a lot of people had a, a lot of negative things to say about this instrument within the, the community of that uh, foundation, because saying that, you know, it was restored so many times, it has a small sound, a lot of people had struggled with it. But for some reason, I really just grew with it. And it's, it's really been an incredible vehicle to, to join me in, in the development of my career. So now all those negative things, I don't think people can say so much about this violin anymore. I mean, it's a very bright instrument. It's very, very bright. The, the, the treble, I think, is the speciality of this instrument, the E string, the A strings. It's got such a powerful crispness to it. The G string, the lower bass strings, has a beautiful crispness to it as well. doesn't have the fullest bass, I would say, but um, definitely it, it has its moments where it really sticks out. It, it's one of those instruments that reacts right away. 
Um, and for me, it's, it's just a joy to play on this one. Thank you for sharing all of that. By the way, for people who are watching on YouTube, that's uh, a beautiful instrument that Timothy was uh, just showing us. But yeah, you know, like violins and strings and bows and the weights of the bows, those are all fascinating topics for me. And just out of curiosity, what kind of strings do you play on? Just, just to set the record straight for some people who are so curious. Yeah, I think Peter Infeld strings. Peter Infeld, is that with a tin E or is that with a different E? So I use Peter Infeld for my A, D, and G. And for my E strings, when I can get my hands on it, I play it on a W, E, Hill string on medium tension. Medium tension, interesting. Okay, so can you talk about why violinists do that? in choosing a different set for A, D, and G and having a different sort of E string. I, I, I mean, I do the, exactly what you do. I do A, D, G on a, on a different set, and then I do an E with a completely different brand. So yeah, can you share your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't know why I ended up changing. I just remember that the E string on what Peter Nippel gave me for, my, for this particular violin just didn't suit it. It was too shrill. It's, it squeaked all the time. So I remember I just, I just opened up my case one time. I was looking through, I have Dominant, I have Vision, I have uh, Parastro. Then I got this W.E. Hill string. And I was you know, let's try this one. It was so cheap. So I tried it. And I just remember it never squeaked. Well, never is a strong word. It hardly squeaked. And it had a very nice mellow sound to it because this instrument is so bright. I think the, the thing about it is that it doesn't have to be just you know, three plus one. It could also be every single string could be a different one, but uh, I haven't really met those people. I've known some people that have different AEs and then different uh, DGs. So like two, two, so like a pair. Um, so yeah, I don't know why I do that actually. It's a good question that you asked. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking that I do know a handful of people that do EA and then uh, DG. I know oftentimes cellists, you know, that have top two strings, you know, A and D are different than the G and the C. I know that's very common amongst the, you know, the cello community. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find strings to be a fascinating topic um, because I used to play on Peter Infeld's. I, I don't anymore, but I find those strings to be, as you said, very crisp, very brilliant. Um, of course, um, not all the strings are going to fit the instrument, which is what you said. Um, Another common one I found was a dominant ADG with the with the Prostro Gold E. That's a very nice. That's a very nice blend. And uh, have you ever tried dominance on on your instrument? Because I know that a lot of people, a lot of violinists, tend to gravitate towards dominance when being paired yeah, with other I instruments. Use dominance. Uh, dominance are fine for me. They're they're something that I would try again, but. I wouldn't do them right now, I, or at least for a big concert, because um, dominants are great neutral things. They're kind of like, like water <laughs> with your meal. It doesn't really affect the flavor. It doesn't really add to the flavor. Um, but I think the reason why I haven't used dominants is because the last time I used them, I just remember them having to break into the violin about four or five days. Um, and that for me is quite a lot of, that's very frustrating for me. I, the nice thing for me about Peter Infeld is I feel like I almost have zero uh, amount of time that I need to break into it. If anything, the, the strings sound even better when you first put them on. 
that new string crispness of the Peter Infeld, I think is just so satisfying. And I, if anything, I actually planned all of my string changes, especially at Queen Elizabeth, like three days or two days before, and no, no later, no sooner than, no later, but no, um, not too far ahead of time as well, because then it tends to wear down. And the, 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 I think the only thing that really is negative about the Peter Infelds is that they, they do wear down very fast, maybe three weeks. Yeah, so I want to actually circle back on the conversation between Guarneri del Jesus and Stradivari Violence. I had a, I was I was very honored to attend a, a like a workshop, and this violin dealer from New York was um, presenting different violins, and you go from like the cheapest violin, and you go all the way up to the Guarneri's and to the Strads. And once we got up to the Guarneri's and the Strads, it was so interesting because they both have such very different qualities. To me, in that setting, in that hall, during that time with those players. The Strad seemed very sweet to me, uh, had had a nice tone projection-wise. Like, you can play pianissimo, and you can hear it at the end of the hall. It was amazing. But that Guarneri that was in the hall compared to the Strad was kind of like a roller coaster ride, you know? And you, you, you kind of, the moment you have this beast in your hands you know, sky's the limit. Like you kind of have to tame the beast. Do you find, did you find that in the Guarneri and the Strad to be that case or not really? Yeah, the Guarneri del Jesu had a much fuller sound. And if you don't take care of it, it just blasts, which is great. I love that part. But the nuances I found sometimes to be very difficult to bring out. The Stradivarius, if anything, um, it has more potential energy. And I find that there is more color uh, it's it's funny. So I find the Strad really great for recording, and it's a wonderful recording instrument. The Del Jesu is better for live performances in many aspects. But this, uh, I think, also Strads. Not all Strads are made equal because there are much more than the Del Jesus, and he was experimenting so much with his style of making as well. Um, the some Strads have a very shrill sound to them, and some of them are very small sounding as well. But I think they're they're both. Uh, polar opposites. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks for sharing all of that. I, I, I really appreciate the conversation and your wisdom and your, um, your knowledge about all that stuff. Let's transition into your time in New York and your time at uh, Juilliard. Um, how long have you been at Juilliard? What has your experience been like at Juilliard? Can you share your thoughts on that for the audience? I entered Juilliard in 2017 to become a master's student. I applied there and I remember I wasn't sure who I wanted to study with because I had studied with Ida Kavafian and Pamela Frank at Curtis and Pincus Zuckerman during the summertime for many years. And just, uh, I needed a change also from a different teacher and so forth. And just the Juilliard faculty seems very impressive, but I didn't know any of them personally. Um, so I actually, I actually reached out to Max <laughs> and I asked them, I said, 
hey, what's, uh, do you have any recommendations for teachers? And he told me about uh, Miss Catherine Cho that he's been studying with uh, when he was younger. So I looked up her biography and that was the first thing that I did. And I was like, oh, you know, and it's funny enough, she actually did two competitions, three competitions in the past. It was Montreal, which I did, um, Hanover, and Queen Elizabeth. So exactly the same competitions um, that I did with her. So I looked at that. I remember I said, oh, you know what? If she can get a, like a top prize in those competitions, I have a lot to learn that, from her. And I heard she's a wonderful person, and I've only heard good things about her. So I set up a lesson just after I put in my application to apply at Juilliard, and I got along with her very well. It was a very short 20-minute 20 20-minute le lesson here in Philadelphia. She came to perform at the Philadelphia Chimney Music Society, and I remember we just met at a hotel, and I just played for her, and I really clicked along with her energy. And so I committed the, the couple months afterwards to go to Juilliard, and I was really scared because, you know, New York has this image of being this very tough place to live in, and um, it's just so expensive also. And I was really scared at first, but then I wanted well, to talk well, about the know, expensive part in a moment because it, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I went into that school with really, really uh, lots of fear actually. And my brother went to Juilliard and I think uh, he had a great time there. Uh, but I just remember it was, he was telling me about a lot of the, the differences that he had between Curtis and there. Curtis feels like a very safe bubble. And Juilliard, in my mind at first, was just kind of this open cage with tigers everywhere. I went in and I loved it, to be honest. My, my years at Juilliard has been amazing. The administration team, the teachers, the support that you can actually reach out to, and the opportunities are really, I think, unparalleled with um, many other schools out there. And just the fact of it being in New York City, even though New York City does seem very much like an alpha city, it's a very intimidating place to be in sometimes because you feel like you can be lower than a lot of people and a lot of people are doing so well. Um, I felt like uh, the nice thing is that people are willing to be reached out to. So I could reach out to some of um, met some mentors that I was put together with. Just it's such a inspiring place. And now I'm in my artist diploma program, and that gives me a lot of time to actually take in the, the to take in New York City and Juilliard itself, and not being uh, distracted with a lot of classes for the sake of fulfilling my master's degree. You mentioned. New York being a very expensive place. And that triggered something very uh, an interesting question for me to ask you in terms of investment in time and investment in education. And I was wondering if you can share your thoughts on that for a lot of us right now, we're stuck at home uh, as of this taping for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think a lot of students right now have applied to music schools in the fall not sure what the situation is going to be like. And I'm sure that's, going, that's the case for you as well. Will we have live performances at these conservatories and musical institutions? Will we have private lessons with our teachers or will they continue to be a two-dimensional experience where we look at a screen and they offer us lessons? I'm curious to know what your thoughts are in terms of investing in your education and your time and your energy um, in this you know, really unique time that we're in. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very confusing time for everybody in the industry, not just students, but I don't think schools even know what's happening at this rate. Um, I think the best way mentally to go forwards is to expect the worst and then 
things might get better from that. I don't exactly know how to advise because I myself am not knowing what things are going forward. I think it's better to be a little bit more conservative in your choices right now. Um, and yeah, it's really hard because I, I don't really know how to guide someone right now because it's so up in the air. And your honesty, because, you know, I, I too find that a lot of my colleagues are getting into these conservatories and to these schools, but I'm like thinking in the back of my head, what if they decide to take a gap year instead, you know, or to, you know, take that gap year and invest in something like outside of music or, you know, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's um, just to provide options that not everyone has to go straight into music school during this time. And I think that's okay. I think that's kind of the elephant in the room. Should I go to school in the fall? If, if it works for your situation, I think that, you know, by all means go and do that. You know, if it's local or if it's um, something like a program that is your dream school, then <clears throat> by all means do it. But I think that you have more options than you think for anyone who's watching and for someone who's listening. So thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts on that. I do want to go back to, you, you mentioned a lot of famous teachers. You've uh, mentioned Pamela Frank, Kavafian, Pinka Zuckerman, and Ms. Catherine Cho, which I hope one day, if you're listening to the podcast, all those teachers, I get to interview you. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you can uh, chime some light on the bond between a student and a mentor and a student and a, and a teacher, because a lot of what you were describing with competition preparation, I think goes beyond a what a typical teacher would advise you to do. Can you share your, your thoughts on that? Definitely. I think that the relationship between a teacher or a mentor and their student slash mentee is at the core of a successful musical career and growth. I think I say that because I think we're in a different time than where even our teachers were in before. Some teachers I know um, are very clear cut and dry. It's like we're here to teach you how to play a certain thing, how to learn a certain technique, and that's all you're going to get out of me. But I think there is a different dimension now, and to share the experience and guidances of what career steps to take next is very important for a teacher to have now as well. Um, I would say all of my teachers in the past have given me advice on how to take what steps, whether that be anything from how to talk to a presenter, how to propose to uh, the dean for an extension of something, or and so forth. And I think those are very important life skills because especially today, it takes so much more than just playing well to become a successful artist. And I think that's not just in our industry, that's with any industry. I mean, um, we've turned ourselves into a very um, personality-based world in terms of how we become um, very successful in our careers. Uh, and that is a skill that is just as important, I think, to be able to talk to people, to be able to present ideas in a way that inspires people to feel the same way as you do about a certain project. And that thing has to be learned from teachers or from your mentors because they have gone through that themselves. And I'm sure they have a lot of experiences that they can share where it didn't go so well uh, and so forth. And I think it's even more important when your parents or people in your family are not musicians because that adds guidances to um, a very mysterious world, I think. I think the classical music industry is a very mysterious one to most people. 
um, you ask just a random person on the street, how does someone get to Carnegie Hall? I mean, yeah, you have to practice, but really, how do you get to Carnegie Hall, right? Uh, and even, I mean, to be honest, even within the classical music industry, nobody really knows. We have an idea of what step you can take, but how do you get to be featured? There are many ways. So that's my relationship. Those are my relationships with my teachers in the past. They've all been mentors on top of being wonderful technicians and helping me to be better at the instrument myself. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a, an ebook out there that's a guide, step-by-step -step way to get to Carnegie Hall? <laughs> that would, I think that would solve a lot of people's problems, you know? Um, hopefully, maybe, or maybe it'll just be a fluke, that ebook. But um, I'd like to talk about your musical interests and the kinds of composers that you like to play and some of them that you might not like to play. <laughs> and can you shed some light on some of the composers or some of the concertos that you've played that you feel really comfortable and intimate with? I am someone that has thought about that a lot. And I, don't, I can't say that I don't like playing composer until I've actually played a work by them. And that's something that I've really learned the hard way because I remember I was like, oh, I don't like anything by Brahms because it's so... You know, it's so deep and blah, blah, blah. But now when I've learned it, I'm like, oh, you know, I can see another shade of the, of the picture here now. And I love it. Um, I think for me, it's more about the piece that I'm playing rather than the composer at this point. Because I think every composer that we hear of has written a masterpiece. And without a doubt, we have to respect that because it's, it's, it has stood the test of time. Um, there are some pieces by even wonderful composers that aren't great. And I think we have to acknowledge that as well because no one's perfect and nobody should be perfect. And that gives you the flexibility to be open with your mind. I'm still a very young uh, career, uh, a very young stage of my career. So I have to be open into playing whatever pieces is offered to me. Uh, most recently, I played something that was really outside of my comfort zone and that was both the Schoenberg String Quartet and the Baird Violin Concerto, which actually was programmed for three, for three weeks from now, but it's canceled. But I, I studied it very, um, very, very seriously. And, you know, I, before you told me I had to play it, I would probably never listen to it. But now that I've learned it, it just opened up a whole different part of my mind. And you also start to understand why the piece is being um, asked to play. It's not so much of it's. It's not so much about like it's a pretty piece or anything, but it has a story uh, that it shares with the listener and a mathematical grammar to it. And I think that's. It's. It's not to say it's lesser music. It's just a different type of music. And within the classical music world, there there are so many genres of it. But if I'm being honest, right now the the the, the repertoire that I feel most comfortable to play is stuff by the big romantic composers, the Tchaikovsky's, the Sassons, the Mendelssohn, Bruch, Lalo, um, and classical Mozart concertos as well. Those I feel very at home with because I felt that um, it's, it, there are pieces that I've had a lot of experience in and studied it a lot with my teachers and I've played a lot. So I feel like I have a strong interpretation that I can share and feel confident with uh, playing for people who bought tickets. <laughs> Uh, I feel that that's also um, part of me that I have to fulfill. So uh, short answer, I feel most comfortable with the, the big sort of um, uh, violinistic pieces right now. You mentioned Schoenberg and, you know, for someone who is not a classically trained violinist or is not a 
classical music on your sword may not know who Schoenberg is. And to be honest, I have not heard the, was it the Schoenberg string quartet and then the Berg violin concerto you mentioned? I, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't even heard the Berg violin concerto. So that kind of, you know, sparked an interest in asking you on what you do when an unfamiliar work is presented to you. What is the process that you go from beginning to end as to how you prepare a piece like that when you're about to perform with a major orchestra? Can you shed some light on that? That's a great question. You know, I, I'm not um, someone that kind of shuns any sort of listening to kind of music. So the first thing I did was I took my phone, typed in Berg Violin Concerto and listened to the whole recording. I heard three or four recordings of it. Cause I think that's really a fast way of learning. We have that luxury to be able to hear someone else play it and to, to observe what it sounds like. Because um, I know a lot of teachers or a lot of people, even my colleagues are like, you know, it's best never to listen to a recording and just to learn it from scratch. I don't have that ability to make something out of nothing. So I've noticed that out of my weaknesses as well. And what you end up doing is you sometimes learn wrong notes because I don't have perfect pitch and sometimes you just make errors. Um, and also it just gives you a holistic view because you get to listen to the orchestra. You get to listen to the colors and the textures and the mood. And these people who record these pieces, they have had a lot of um, studies done. Like they, they probably practiced this a lot. They played for a lot of people, had shed some light, had experiences. So um, I think that's the first step that I do, especially even with actually common pieces you know, like Tchaikovsky. When I first learned it, I listened to a whole bunch of recordings first. Um, so that's the first step that I take. And then I sort of just sort out where the most difficult sections are, or at least it looks where the most difficult sections are. Then I put a star, then I try to learn it um, as consistently as I can. Um, and that's sort of the, the beginning process. And once things are underneath your hands, then I think that's when you can actually start learning the piece. Because before that, you're, you're sorting out the piece, I think. And that, that is really the most interesting part. It's when you're getting from that level of you can play it through from mostly memorized as a state of your mind and then getting it into a place where you can actually present it and make a story and the piece actually should feel quite small. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I know that for me, to, for what it sounds like is that it's just another form of score studying before you actually learn the piece, right? So you actually, you know, you're listening to the piece just to get a feel for what it is. And I'm sure that for someone like you, who sometimes needs to learn repertoire at a very quick pace, sometimes having that in your ear already gives you a good idea on, you know, it kind of cancels out what you don't need to work on. Like, okay, that, you know, scratch that off the list. That's easy to learn. Let me focus on like measure so-and-so because those are the most difficult bits or most exposed parts. Um, can you talk about practice? <laughs> you know, there's that famous Allen Iverson video for anyone who's a 76ers fans, like practice, man. <laughs> Gotta, and for those of you in Europe, the Phil in Europe, Philadelphia 76ers, a basketball team, NBA. And <laughs> yeah, and you're, and you're in Philly right now, uh, Timothy. So talk about practice and what your approach is to practice how long you practice yeah, and so, on. so that's a really great topic that I am constantly trying to think about. I mean, my practice schedule is kind of all over the place, especially the last couple of years. I just felt like it, I didn't really have a real system. You know, I was just trying to, my end goal was to be able to be uh, performing something that I feel that was a, a concise interpretation. 
And that goes everything from learning the piece to memorizing it, to timing it and, and so forth. Um, but in terms of actually developing and continue to strengthen your technique and bow technique and your musicality, let's start with technique. I think with technique, it's something that um, needs to always be challenged, kind of like working out. You, you can never do an exercise, the same exercise for too long because then your body gets used to it and um, it starts to forego the challenge of keeping in shape. So for me, right now, what I've been doing is I've been trying to learn a new Paganini Caprice um, every three weeks or so. And Paganini Caprices are great because they target a certain function or technique um, in isolation. And that's what it focuses on for basically three or four minutes, whether that be the first Caprice of Ricochet and double stops, but also focus on shifting. So you have to really stir out your mind and it gives you something to work on. Um, and with the overlying question of it still being in tune. With the right hand technique, um, I think, to be honest, with the right hand technique, it's a little bit more complicated than the left hand. Left hand, there's a clear path. You can work on octaves, you can work on strengthening these things. With the right hand, there's so much of a relationship between your ear, your mindset, and also what you've learned before. Because everybody's right hand, everybody's hand is different to begin with. And uh, some people have long fingers. Some people have long arms. I have a very long arm. So for me, when people, uh, you too? Yeah. Okay, good. And for some reason, there are some, certain people that you see play on the internet. Even my teacher, Mr. Pinka Zuckerman and Ida and even Pam, they have very short arms. So for them to have an upbow staccato that is with a straight bow uh, in the middle looks very comfortable. But for me, because my arm is so long, if I put it in the middle, it, it doesn't feel like this is the, the, the point of balance. So I actually have to like play a bit further down. It's more of, um, uh, there okay, I would say with the left hand, it's like baking. You have certain measurements that you can follow as long as you follow the instructions and do them correctly and practice that, you'll get it right more or less every time. You can measure it. With the right hand, it's like cooking the main course. There's no, technique exactly of how to uh, measurements more about taste and the same thing about your right hand you just have to play around with it and you can look at some people to see how they're doing it but you have it's a trial and error process in terms of practicing my my musicality I think that one actually is something I'm still learning about I think really uh, you have to go to concerts you have to listen to people play you have to interact normally as a function uh, normal human and function in society because so much of music is a reflection of your state of mind and your mood and your thought process and your maturity as well and you need to feel those emotions before you can actually start to share those emotions and then you start to then then music becomes um i think something that you want to practice because then you have three core uh challenges to have Yeah, I always, um, I've been doing a lot of teaching lately um, within the last year and a half or so, more so than performance, although I try to balance the two out. But what I always tell my students, um, even my um, even my high school students, that, you know, to understand music, you have to understand everything in terms of like the arts, world history, what's going on in this time period, what was the idea, what were the ideas that being thrown around, 
during that time, like in Mozart during the Enlightenment area, what was he thinking about, what was going on in his culture? I think those were a lot. And as, as a matter of fact, I have a statue of Mozart right over here, little Mozart right there. Yeah. I think that, and Haydn right over here, uh, Mozart and Haydn, uh, you know, the goats of the classical of the of the classical era and um i love mozart and haydn especially the haydn string quartets they're really amazing um but you know on a side note i kind of want to you know go off topic uh off topic from music and want to just hear how you're doing during this COVID 19 pandemic and um have you developed any hobbies during this time what uh, have you doing a lot of cooking you mentioned baking and cooking have you doing a little bit more of that lately definitely i've always been a huge cook uh chef and, and since I was very young, I love that aspect of putting ingredients together and using my instincts to create something. Um, but I, I wouldn't say I, I'm doing I'm doing more, but I wouldn't say that's like something that I've been focusing on. If anything, I've been trying to. Um, I've always loved creating and editing videos, actually, to be honest. And I've been doing a lot of that. And I have these wonderful cameras that I used to be such a nerd about, and now finding the confidence to actually record myself play. And, and record videos and post them on YouTube. I think that for me is really uh, something that I've been interested in and just learning about frame rates, for example, and editing all that stuff. That takes a lot of time. Now, I mean, I always knew it was very difficult, but now you have, I tip my hat off to, to uh, video editors because I mean, that, that takes a lot of creativity. It's a lot of time, you know, yeah. especially for someone like you who has a very vigorous performance schedule, not just nationally, but internationally around the world. You know, this is something that, you know, these are skills that you're building, you know, right now that you can take everywhere with you. If you're going to be in a hotel room, you can talk about your, you know, experience or vlog or whatever, you know? And uh, I know that a lot of people are taking advantage during this time. Like for me, my wife and I, we are taking advantage of comparing different Migo ranks and pairing them with beers and seeing which beers go well with the Migo ranks. So, if you have, <clears throat> totally off topic in terms of music, but if you have the perfect beer and Migo Rang combo combination, please leave them down in the, in the comments below because I'm sure I will, I will do a video. I will do a video of me eating the Migo Rang with this pairing on the Violin Podcast, if you will. <laughs> and, and Timothy, you're, you're, you're welcome to join me. This is like a two-way streak. I can get Max Tan on this if we want, if we want to. Um, anyways, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, but I, before we get to the Violin Podcast trivia, which is one of my favorite parts of the Violin Podcast, um, I just want to kind of leave off the leave the interview with some thoughts on the state of classical music in the year 2020. Um, you know, right now, as of course, we're going through some pretty unprecedented times, and a lot of us are questioning what the survival rate of many orchestras are going to be like, and what the performance experience is going to be like after all of this ends. Can you shed some light on what it means to be a violinist and an artist in 2020 for you? Yeah, that's a, I, I ask myself that every morning, to be honest. I, I really don't know to be what the answer is about what classical music is going to look like after this goes back to normal. What I can assume at this point is that there will be a lot of changes. Uh, I feel like with after every single major world event, there's always been um, a significant change of how things are run. Whether that be booking artists um, with a shorter, a shorter amount of time, because sometimes some of my concerts are booked two years ahead of time, and that's 
that's great because it gives you stability, but also that kind of stunts any kind of spontaneity, uh, whether that be more uh, chamber concerts, whether that be chamber ensembles, I don't know. But what I know for sure is that um, with, this, with the amount of people being stuck at home and not being able to share um, the skill set that we have, which is intended for people to get around and to play in a public for, is that we definitely are learning how to utilize online platforms to share our music. And I think that is something that has been very much forgotten about in, the, in this industry compared to other music industries, whether that be pop, rap, whatever. Uh, I feel like they really were much more progressive in that sense because uh, they do, I mean, generally they have a younger crowd. So generally younger people are willing to, or they, they just, they just uh, know how to do that. We have a older crowd and a lot of people don't have phones and, 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 and so forth, but there is an, um, there is just a certain trend that you see that people will eventually get a phone and, and so forth. And, um, media online is just going to be so much more important and figuring out a way of how to have an, uh, a constructive way of sharing our art without um, without being, you know, uh, just recording online. There must be a format. And I think that's what we're discovering right now. So I think that part is really exciting. That part about how we can not just always be performing a concert on stage, but how can we also have a second part of our career? And actually, if anything, um, that's what talking to my managements and talking to other presenters that's what they're looking for at this point is how can we gain an online public so that when concerts come back to life there is a following still because that is no matter what industry you're in in the arts that is for first and foremost is to have a crowd to play for yeah thank you for sharing your thoughts because i think everybody is a little on edge uh, when it comes to that, I know that on Classic FM that there was a recent article about, you know, conductors. I think uh, Sir Simon Rattle was on the, on a Zoom call. I'm, I'm sure you probably are familiar with what I'm about to say, but they're talking about the state of classical music for one, but also what it's going to be like financially for a lot of these major orchestral institutions like the London Symphony. And I think that a lot of people are, you know, frightened and scared because, They've never experienced anything like this before, right? But I think it's becoming clear, as you said, that the more we're isolated, the more our lives are becoming more virtual and more online. And I think, I don't know if like everything will be virtual 100%, but I know that there will definitely be a greater shift towards virtual concerts, at least for like the foreseeable future, right? And then hopefully one day I pray that a lot of, you know, you know, in live, in-person concerts are going to happen. So for both of our sakes, so we can have salaries, you know what I mean? <laughs> now, so we're going to play a little bit of violin podcast trivia, okay? So for uh, for people who are joining us for the first time on the violin podcast, first of all, welcome. I really appreciate you being here, and I hope you're enjoying this uh, podcast with Tim Timothy Choi. Um we're going to change violin podcast trivia up a little bit because what I did in the past was you need to get three out of five questions right in 25 seconds time. However, recently in Christian Habel's interview, I stumbled upon my questions, <laughs> which added to the length of time for, for Christian to add to his, um, to, his, uh, to his answer. So what I'm going to do this time 
is that I'm going to read the question in full and then you'll have four seconds to respond to that question. Right. So that way I can take my time. And as I say this question, you have some time to think about it. And that doesn't mean that the questions get any easier, though. All right. So here we go. So I have I have a watch here. So at the moment I finish reading the question and by the way, you have you, you do have to get three out of the five questions. Right. That still is applicable. And you get a prize from me. <laughs> I'll try my best. All right. So. First question, how many hairs are there in a violin bow? 200, I think about. Wow, you got that really quickly. Yeah, between 150 and 200. You know your stuff, Mr. Choi. So that's one question right. Okay, it gets harder, by the way. So number two, what is the name of a violin made by this 18th century Cremonese violin maker that is in like new condition? No. <laughs> ah. <laughs> the sad music right over here. And the answer is the Messiah. Uh, I don't know that one. The Stradivari Messiah. You don't know about the Messiah? I don't know that one. I don't know. Actually, I can't think of too many strats that I've actually memorized. <laughs> <laughs> I like know. around, yeah, there are actually around 600 strats in the world as currently, but, you know, Stradivari made close over, you know, 1500, but 600 only remain um, to this day, at least for now, at least. Good. Third question. <laughs> this is a fun one. In hours, the unit of measurement is in hours. What is the world record for the longest violin marathon ran by an individual? I, I... So I didn't know this, it's actually 36 hours, zero minutes and 20 seconds by a man in India, ran by a man in India, but the name was Vizwanath MS. And I know this, you can fact check this, it's on the Guinness Book of World Records website. So you can check, fact check that. Okay, so, so far you have one question right, two wrong. You need to get these next two questions right to get these right. This one you may know, but we'll see. Question number four. According to Bach Track's 2019 classical music statistics, who was the busiest violin in 2019? Violinist or violin? Violinist. Who was, was the busiest violinist in 2019? Uh, 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 um, Hillary Hahn. It was a good guess. But she has actually taken a, she took, she took a long break in 2019. But uh, it was Kavakos. Oh. Leonidas Cavacos was the busiest violinist in 2019. And the next one was, I think, Joshua Bell was the next one. Okay, last question. This is for fun. What wood is a violin bow usually made out of? Oh. Leonidas Cavacos was the busiest violinist in 2019. And the next one was, I think, Joshua Bell was the next one. Okay, last question. This is for fun. What wood is a violin bow usually made out of? Maple. Cue the music one more time. It's usually Pernambuco wood. Right. You know, thank you so much for uh, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate it. I will send you a violin podcast sticker for being a good sport. All right. So. 
for people who are listening in. Thanks, ag- thanks again for listening and watching uh, the Violin Podcast. I really appreciate it. And if you haven't subscribed, please make sure to subscribe and hit those bell notifications. Um, Timothy, thank you so much for joining me th- today. Hearing everyone. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. Yeah. Sarah.